Welcome to Cancer Conference Update, highlights of the December 2008 American Society of Hematology meeting in San Francisco. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with five clinical investigators and asked them for their take on a number of papers from the meeting and several important therapeutic areas, beginning with Dr. Susan O'Brien, who commented on data sets in CLL, CML, and ALL, beginning with a fascinating paper from M.D. Anderson that she co-authored, evaluating lenalidomide in older patients with CLL. The idea behind this was that we have very good therapies, particularly chemoimmunotherapy, for younger, healthier patients. We would typically use FCR, for example. But if patients are older, particularly if they're older and have comorbidities, it's much more difficult to deliver FCR. They tend to have more infections. They are usually not able to complete all the cycles, et cetera. They have a lower complete remission rate, which I think is because they can't usually complete all six cycles. So we were looking for sort of a kinder, gentler approach. And this seemed like an interesting approach to take because in the relapse trial, and there are actually two, the one that we did and the one that Roswell Park did, there was very good activity of lenalidomide in the relapse setting, and it was fairly well tolerated. The main side effect is myelosuppression, but the advantage of a pill is that if you see the counts going down, you can hold the drug and then resume at a lower dose. It's not like when you give IV chemo and you're kind of stuck down the line with whatever you get. So this trial was initiated for patients over the age of 65, and the follow-up is relatively short, which is important because we know that the responses with lenalidomide can occur very slowly over time. And so you want a long enough follow-up to really be able to tell if it's working. In addition, CRs, if you're going to get them, tend to occur, and again, I'm extrapolating from the relapse data, CRs tend to occur late, 9 to 12 months on therapy. So with that being said, the overall response rate, I think, was about 55% at this point in the evaluable patients. Somewhat disappointingly, I think we haven't seen any complete remissions yet, although I just made the caveat that the follow-up may not be long enough. In addition, we started at 5 milligrams, whereas our relapse trial used 10, and we can go up every 30 days, but many of the patients are developing neutropenia. And what we talked about in our group recently was maybe if we use growth factor support, which actually is not prohibited by the protocol, but most people were just holding the drug and waiting and then resuming at a lower dose. If we use growth factor, maybe we can get the dose up faster. And I'm beginning to believe that there really is a dose response with this drug, although the data is not that clear. On the other hand, we do know that probably if you start at higher doses, and by higher I mean, say, 25 milligrams, there have been significant problems, particularly with tumor lysis, and that's, I think, too high a dose to start at, but five maybe actually be too low. And I think in the future, we're going to try and push to get the dose up a little bit more. The hypothesis would also be that if you are going to encounter myelosuppression, it'll be early, kind of like the situation with CML and imatinib, where If you get myelosuppression early, later on you can often bring the dose back up, and that's presumably because you're getting rid of the leukemia in the marrow and the patients can tolerate higher doses. Where do you see things heading for this agent, not just in elderly patients, but in general CLL? Well, the pivotal trial, which is either about to begin or has started, is a multicenter randomized trial of lenalidomide versus placebo as a maintenance strategy in patients responding at the time of first relapse. And it's not a frontline trial because, frankly, remissions are so long in general, particularly with chemoimmunotherapy, that that's not very feasible. 
But these are patients who have relapsed once, have then responded to chemotherapy, and it can be a variety of regimens. And then they would be randomized to placebo or lenalidomide. I think it's an attractive study because lenalidomide lends itself to a maintenance schedule, again, because it's an oral agent, which is that we don't really have, other than clarambucil, oral agents in CLL. There is oral fludarabine, but not available in the United States. So it lends itself to maintenance because it's a pill that patients can take on a daily basis. In addition, you won't run into problems with things like tumor lysis or potentially tumor flare. You'd think you'd see much less tumor flare in this setting because, again, the patients have already responded to chemotherapy, and so they're debulked, if you will. They're not going to have bulky lymph nodes that are susceptible to flare. And the standard of care really is to do nothing. So I think if we can show that this drug prolongs remissions, that would be very attractive and give us an option for patients who don't get, say, a PCR-negative CR, particularly, and those are pretty uncommon at the time of relapse. But there are other areas being explored with the drug. There's data with lenalidomide and rituximab, and that looks encouraging. There's no reason, theoretically, you couldn't combine it with other agents, but you would have to presumably dose-reduce or be careful because something like fludarabine is also myelosuppressive. And again, the schedule of lenalidomide being sort of daily continuous doesn't quite blend that well with chemotherapy as we normally give it. But there are studies looking at combinations. So there are a lot of ongoing studies exploring it in different areas, but the pivotal trial is going to be the maintenance trial. We're seeing lenalidomide being used in a variety of different situations. Anything new in terms of the mechanism of action? A lot of people are looking at that. As you know, it does a lot of different things. It downregulates VEGF. By the way, VEGF appears to be an autocrine growth factor in CLL, so that may be very important. It downregulates TNF, which tends to be very high and can stimulate CLL cells. There's a lot of thought that it is affecting the CLL microenvironment. And we've come to know over the past 10 years that the microenvironment is really crucial for the CLL cells to survive. And by that, I mean the marrow. It's interesting that we think of it as a disease where the cells don't die, but yet we've known for years that when you take patients' cells out of their body and put them into culture, the cells die very, very fast, suggesting that there are obviously factors in the body that are giving the cells life. And that appears to be coming from nurse-like cells and other cells that are in the bone marrow environment. So the hypothesis is actually interesting. It's that lenalidomide is not necessarily working through direct cytotoxicity, but through one of or maybe a number of different things it may be doing to the microenvironment, and particularly in terms of changing cytokine patterns. Let's talk a little bit about the paper by Halleck et al., looking at FCR versus FC. Right. That's a paper I don't think will change practice patterns too much in the United States because most people are using rituximab already in combination with either fludarabine as a single agent, FR, or FC, fludarabine cyclophosphamide. It's important as a proof of principle showing what we knew from phase two studies or thought we knew, which was that adding rituximab to FC clearly makes it a much better regimen, both in terms of complete response rates, overall response rates, and progression-free survival. It's an important study for Europe because, as you know, there's very little off-label use of drugs there, and the intent will be, I think, to try and get approval for rituximab. And as you know, even in the United States, rituximab is not approved for CLL, but it's part of the compendium. I think it's still pretty well accepted. So I don't think it has that much impact in the United States. It will have a lot of impact in Europe, though. What about the paper by Sebastian Botcher et al. looking at quantitative MRD assessments in terms of CLL and patients treated with FCR? 
So that is a correlative study from the same trial, the FC versus FCR trial. And they use both PCR and four-color flow, although they focus presentation on the four-color flow, which, by the way, is a commercially available assay in the United States. And they showed, not perhaps surprisingly, that the lower the levels of MRD post-therapy, the longer the remissions. And at the end of therapy, they could kind of group the patients into those that had more than 10 to the minus 2 cells, and they had the shortest remissions, an intermediate group, 10 to the minus 2 to 10 to the minus 4, and then the ones that had the most durable remissions had a level of MRD below 10 to the minus 4. The other interesting point was that if a patient with FC got that low level, and they were less likely to, but if they got down to the same low level, they did just as well. And again, I think the focus on CLL is beginning to shift particularly in younger patients, where 20 years ago, the whole approach to this disease was palliation. And now I think we're focused on getting complete remissions. And even within complete remissions, people are starting to focus a lot more on MRD negativity, because every study that's been done so far that's looked at it has shown that the lower the level of MRD, the more durable the remission. And I don't think that's surprising from a logical point of view. But the truth was, five, 10 years ago, we didn't even have regimens that produced morphologic CRs in the majority of patients. So there was no point in talking about MRD. But now we really can talk about that and get down to low levels. What were your thoughts about the paper by Craig Reynolds at all looking at FCR versus penostatin, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab? I don't know what to make of that study. The reason I say that is the hypothesis behind the study was that of all of the single-agent nucleoside analogs, pentostatin is the least myelosuppressive. And so the hypothesis that led to the development of PCR was that we know that with FCR or FR for that matter, the main side effect is myelosuppression and then potentially complications of infection. So the hypothesis was that PCR would be less myelosuppressive and thus potentially lead to less infections. Now there is phase two data, both in the relapse setting done by Memorial Sloan Kettering, and there's a frontline trial which was published recently by Neil Kay. The problem with trying to compare these trials to FR trials or FCR trials is that in the PCR study that Neil Kay did, the grade 3 to 4 myelosuppression was about 40-45%, which is significantly lower than FCR or FR, but everybody in the PCR trial got prophylactic GCSF. So there really was no direct comparison that you could do because in the published data for FCR and FR, there was no growth factor use. My hypothesis was if you're going to get 40 to 50% with growth factor, then without it, you're probably going to be up around 80%, which is where you are with FCR. So the actual aim of this randomized trial was to see if, in fact, the hypothesis was correct. Now, What they did show was that there really was no difference in myelosuppression or infections between the two regimens. But why I said I don't really know what to make of this study is that the response rates were terrible. So the overall response rates in both regimens were about 50%. Keep in mind that the FCR published MD Anderson data overall response rates 95%. In the study we just talked about of the German study of FCR versus FC, the overall response rate to FCR was 95%. Not only were the overall response rates very low, the CR rates were 7% in the PCR arm and 17% in the FCR arm. Again, MD Anderson data is about 70% and the German trial is in the 50s, which is not surprising when you go from single-center to multi-center trials that you're going to have some drop-off. In fact, I was at that presentation and I asked Craig, did he have any perspective on this? The first thing you might think is, well, maybe the community docs don't push 
as hard, and maybe they didn't complete all the cycles. But actually, he showed the data, and most of the patients were able to complete six cycles. So he really wasn't clear on why you know, the responses that they were seeing, the response rates were so inferior to what anybody would have predicted with either regimen, but particularly FCR. So to me, if I can't really understand the data, I'm always skeptical of the conclusion, even though my bias is that there's probably no difference in myelosuppression between PCR and FCR. Now, maybe when they dive down into the data more, in terms of just prognostic factors that are simple, rise stage, et cetera, age, you know, you might think, well, in the community setting, they might be much older. They really weren't. I mean, the median age was about 61. So until they sort of dive into the data more, it's a little bit hard to know how to interpret this study just because the response rates are so low. What about the paper by Osterberg looking at ofatumumab and CLL? Yeah, this paper got a lot of attention. Ofatumumab is a novel humanized anti-CD20. So its target is CD20, just like rituximab. But there is preclinical data that at low antigen density, which is of particular relevance to CLL, because we know that CLL cells have very low number of molecules of CD20 compared to other lymphomas. And that's one of the hypothesized reasons for why single-agent rituximab is such a weak agent in CLL as opposed to other lymphomas. Preclinical data suggests that at low antigen density, and part of the reason for this is this antibody binds to a different epitope, that there's much better cell kill. And so the pivotal trial, which is the one that was presented, was a trial in patients who were both fludarabine refractory and alemtuzumab refractory or fludarabine refractory with bulky adenopathy. Now, the reason for this was the hypothesis that if patients are really refractory to both fludarabine and alemtuzumab, that's an unmet medical need. And so the obvious Plus is that if they can show an advantage here, they may be able to get an approval without a randomized trial. And just for the sake of discussion, refractory does not mean relapsed. And that's very important. You know, you can have a patient who gets fludarabine and relapses two, three years later. Refractory here is defined, and this was actually originally defined for the CAMPATH trials. It's the same definition, is uh, failure to respond to their last fludarabine-based regimen or alemtuzumab if they're double refractory or progression within six months. Now, we recently published from our database about 100 patients who fit this criteria. And the overall response rate to anything, so this is just any trial we ever did, was about 20-something percent, and the median survival was about nine months. And I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by that. I mean, this is a very, very difficult population. I will admit that I was very skeptical that this trial was going to be positive. I was completely surprised that not only did they have a decent response rate, they had a response rate in both arms of roughly 50%. And can you talk a little bit more about the eligibility and design? So, and I was going to talk about the design because that's relevant. So the eligibility, again, was either fludarabine and alemtuzumab refractories, what's called the double refractories, or the fludarabine refractory bulky. The idea was if patient has bulky adenopathy, most people don't really want to treat them with single-agent alemtuzumab. Now, the design is interesting, and the dose is interesting, and this becomes a relevant question. Remember that the dose of rituximab is 375 per meter squared. Here, the dose of ofatumumab on the first dose, and again, this is because of infusion reactions, typical just like with rituximab. The first dose is 500. It's a flat dose. And then weekly times 8, the subsequent doses are 2 grams, and then monthly times 4. So 
The interesting point is that we had done and published in 2001 or so a dose escalation trial with rituximab and showed that, in fact, if you use rituximab as a single agent in CLL at high doses, you got much better responses. So the first an obvious question to me was, well, is this just a dose phenomenon because they're giving much higher doses and more of them? I'm not sure that's true. I'm starting to believe that it's not simply a dose phenomenon. And the reason I say that is when we did our dose escalation rituximab trial, other than dose, which clearly correlated with response, and we went up to 2250 per meter squared, other than dose, the only thing in that trial that correlated with response or lack of response was being fludarabine refractory. And so if you look at the aggregate data for all the doses, because this wasn't a big trial, you can't pull it out by dose, the response rate in the fludarabine refractory was significantly lower at about 20%. Again, these are not necessarily double refractory or fludarabine refractory bulky, and the response rate was about 20%. Now, on the other hand, we only gave it for four weeks. So again, it's a little bit apples and oranges. In a way, from a practical point of view, it may not matter that much because if this is the dose and this is the dose that becomes available and it's a lot more effective than single-agent rituximab at the standard dose, then, of course, I'm going to use it. Where do you think things are heading in terms of this agent? Well, I think that they are filing. And so if it's successful, you know, the agent may be available next year. They also have a trial which has not been presented yet. Well, they have multiple trials, but this one is particularly relevant, which is a trial that was frontline FC plus ofatumumab. Obviously, there's no reason you couldn't go to combinations just like you do with FCR or FR. And I think there are a bunch of trials looking at that, and they're also looking at the drug in lymphoma. But I think given this very impressive response rate in a very refractory population, I think there's a reasonable chance this drug will get approved. If it were available and approved today, how would you utilize it yourself in a non-protocol setting? Well, I guess the obvious thing is if it works that well in that group, it might work a lot better if you moved it up. I wouldn't give it as a single agent frontline to young people, but, well, I think there's some interesting trials one could do. You could consider using it single agent in elderly or patients with more comorbidities, just like we talked about for the lenalidomide. Again, with the hypothesis being that if you've got that kind of a response rate in a refractory population, you're going to get a lot better response rate in a less refractory population, and then even better response rate in a frontline setting. I certainly wouldn't give it to a healthy 60-year-old where I can give them FCR and maybe get a six-year remission. But I think it could be looked at in the elderly as frontline therapy. I think it could be looked at earlier than the heavily refractory. And then the obvious place to go with this is combination, just where any place you would combine rituximab. So fludarabine, we now, of course, have bendamustine that's commercially available. There is some data. In fact, there was a presentation at ASH about bendamustine and rituximab, and that looked very promising. There's no reason you couldn't do something like bendamustine and ofatumumab. I mean, obviously, I think all of this should be done in a clinical trial setting first, but I think that there's many ways in which further use of this drug could be explored, both single agent and combination. Do you feel comfortable in your own mind that this drug has more activity in CLL than rituximab overall? At this dose, Yes. Again, how much of it is a dose phenomenon, and you gave altogether 12 doses. As I mentioned, even in our high-dose trial, we gave four. So at this dose, yes, but that's all I can really say. You mentioned the bendamustine rituximab study, the German CLL study. Can you comment on that? So that was also presented, and that was a trial in relapsed CLL. As you know, the drug recently got approval in the United States, 
and that was based on a randomized frontline trial, also spearheaded by the Germans, because this is a drug that was actually developed in East Germany and has been around for 30 years. And the frontline trial that led to the approval was a randomized trial of, of bendamustine versus clarambucil. The trial that was presented at ASH, again, was a relapse CLL trial combining bendamustine with rituximab and showing very excellent response rates in that setting with fairly mild myelosuppression. Bendamustine is an alkylating agent. There's some controversy, perhaps, over whether it also has nucleoside analog properties. There is part of the structure that looks very similar to a purine I would say more of the preclinical data suggests that it doesn't actually act as a nucleoside analog. Nevertheless, it's clearly a very effective drug, and combined with rituximab makes perfect sense, and I think there's enough data to suggest that that's going to be better than bendamustine alone, although the trial in this population was not the same population as the frontline trial. What about the REACH trial? There were results presented of that looking at rituximab, fludarabine, and cyclophosphamide. So that trial was similar to the German trial in that the regimens were exactly the same, FCR versus FC, but this trial was done in relapse. And again, I think it's the same sort of thing that I said for the German frontline trial. I don't think it's going to have a lot of impact in the United States, you know, where I think people are already using rituximab extensively in combination, not so for sure in Europe. And again, this trial had very similar results, not as good as the frontline because it's a relapse trial, but the same type of results so that the FCR was better in terms of CR and overall response rates as well as progression-free survival. Let's talk a little bit about CML, and we'll start with a paper by Rosti looking at the cytogenetic and molecular response to nilotinib in patients with a pH-positive CML. So that's interesting data because we know that the standard of care is imatinib 400 a day. There is some data, mostly from MD Anderson and others, to suggest that higher doses of imatinib may be better. The randomized TOPS trial was also presented at ASH. We may be talking about that. That's 400 versus 800. But if we're just talking about 400, what it appears from this phase two trial, and actually our data was also presented at ASH, we have a single institution a phase two trial of frontline nilotinib. So these are newly diagnosed CML patients who go on nilotinib rather than imatinib. And if we compare our own data to the data with 400, the results with nilotinib are significantly better. This trial we're talking about is not a randomized trial, but if you compare the data to the data from the IRIS trial, or if we compare our own data to our own historical data with 400, it appears that nilotinib is producing early on, much better complete cytogenic response rates and molecular remission rates. Again, the follow-up on this trial is short. And one of the issues that always comes up, especially with the imatinib dosing, is will you get to the same point over time with imatinib and you're just getting faster results with high-dose imatinib or nilotinib here? And that's what, at least for the high-dose versus standard-dose studies, are not completely clear yet. There would be a hypothetical advantage to getting the response faster, which would be that the faster you eliminate the clone, the less likely you are to develop resistance. But the real question that people have for, again, some of the randomized trials is, yes, I don't think there's any question in this data supports it, that early on, you know, within a year, you do much better with nilotinib than standard dose imatinib. And the real question is, over time, how is it going to shake out? Now, you were part of a paper presented at ASH looking at dasatinib in patients with untreated CML. Can you talk about that? The results are very similar to our results with nilotinib. And what we have shown, again, is that 
both drugs with relatively early follow-up, say about a year, are significantly better at producing complete cytogenetic and major molecular response rates than 400 of imatinib. Interestingly, what we did not show, however, was a benefit for either of them over 800 of imatinib. But again, 800 is not the approved dose. But in our hands, both the nilotinib, the disatinib, and the 800 dose appear similar, and all are clearly superior to 400. Where do you think things are heading in regard to these three agents? It's tricky because I think there are randomized trials. One of them actually, I think, was presented at ASH versus standard dose imatinib. And the real question in those kind of trials, and this was an issue in the TUPS trial, which was the trial I alluded to, which was 400 versus 800 of imatinib. And that was, I think, presented also. The real issue is what endpoint are you going to accept to say, you know, this is good enough that we should change our standard? And that's very tricky. The endpoint, for example, in the TOPS trial was molecular response at 12 months, which, by the way, the trial failed in that sense or failed in the hypothesis that the 800 would be better because, in fact, at all of the earlier time points before 12 months, the high-dose imatinib was significantly better, but at 12 months it wasn't. So, in other words, the 400 dose was beginning to catch up. Now, Again, the issue with the trial is you have to have some kind of an endpoint. You can't just say we're going to look at response rates at 22 different points in time. So theoretically, that trial failed because it did not meet its primary endpoint. On the other hand, people who believe in the high dose, and obviously I would be one of them, think that with longer follow-up, we in fact may see a difference. But again, that remains to be seen. So the trick with these trials are twofold, particularly in terms of changing the standard. What is the endpoint that you look at? Remember that these trials are looking at molecular response, not cytogenetic response, and that's partly because cytogenetic response is so high with imatinib. I mean, it's a pretty good drug. So is molecular response, particularly in terms of getting a registration indication for any of these, I'm not aware pretty much of any drug that's been approved based on molecular response. Doesn't mean it shouldn't or couldn't happen, but it's shifting the paradigm. But that's just more of a registration issue in terms of what people could potentially do with it, do I think based on the data that was presented at ASH, people should start using either of the second-generation TKIs as first-line therapy? The simple answer is no, not yet. What about the paper by Muller looking at desatinib efficacy in patients with chronic phase CML and pre-existing BCR-ABLE mutations? There is a fair bit of data coming out about this now, and all of it is pretty consistent, and the same is true for nilotinib. And what I mean is if you look at people who are resistant to imatinib, about 50% of them will have mutations, and I think there's been over 60-something different mutations identified. For the most part, the only mutation which clearly confers resistance to any of the TKIs is the T315i, and none of them will really work in that setting. The other mutations are very variable in terms of their IC50, so the dose at which you kill the cells in vitro that have that mutation, at which you kill 50% of the cells, and they vary from you know high doses to low doses with both nilotinib and disatinib. And what this showed, perhaps not surprisingly, is that A, patients with mutations respond just as well as patients who don't overall, but that if they then look at the IC50 for the mutations, the ones that are more sensitive, the patients who have the mutations that are more sensitive preclinically have better responses than those who have more resistance in terms of a higher IC50. And this data has been shown also for nilotinib. 
There's another TKI, actually, that's in development that looks very encouraging, and that's basutinib. And basutinib is also a BCR-able SARC inhibitor like satinib. What it doesn't do is it doesn't have much effect on CKIT, which the others do, and it doesn't have much effect on PDGFR, which the others do. And the putative relevance of that is that it's thought that the inhibition of CKIT might be what causes the myelosuppression, which is the most common side effect of all of the TKIs. And the PDGFR inhibition is thought possibly to be related to the pleural effusions that can be seen with disatinib. And in fact, on the phase one trial with bosutinib, the dose-limiting toxicity was rash and a little bit of diarrhea. It clearly appears to be, and obviously there's no head-to-head comparisons of any of these, it clearly appears to be probably the least myelosuppressive of the TKIs. And again, with the phase two data, looks producing very high response rates, very analogous to what you get in imatinib failures with disatinib or nilotinib. So there's another drug that may be out there in the not-too-distant future that will be available. What are some of the key research questions that are being asked right now in clinical trials with CML and trials in general that you think are going to lead to changes in practice over the next few years? There are a number of trials randomizing against 400 of imatinib. And again, I mentioned that I think there are some sticking points with those trials in terms of what endpoint do you choose. And let's say you choose an endpoint and it's positive for the sake of argument. So let's say if in the TOPS trial or in any trial, it turned out that the major molecular response at 12 months was better. So what? I mean, does that mean anything? In fact, there was data presented at ASH from the IRIS trial where we get most of our data related to frontline imatinib that as long as a patient has a complete cytogenetic response by 12 months, and this is frontline now with imatinib, it doesn't actually matter what their 12-month molecular response is in terms of progression-free survival. Yes, if they have a very high molecular level, it's bad, but that usually is because that's what correlates with not achieving a complete cytogenetic response. Once you've gotten down to the level where you're at complete cytogenetic response, the 12-month major molecular response didn't make any difference in outcome. 18 months looks like it did. And that's different from data that had been presented a year or two ago, no, maybe longer than that, where people thought that the 12-month major molecular response versus not was a predictor of outcome. So the point I'm getting at is that, you know, you not only have sort of a difficulty in identifying what time point you're going to analyze the data, but if you pick a time point and you people are not going to pick five years, obviously, if they want to look at some results from a trial. The earlier you can get some results, the better off you're going to be. But, you know, so what if the trial shows that the 12-month major molecular response is better with drug A over imatinib if we don't know that that makes any difference in the long term? So there's a lot of issues in terms of how the design of these trials in terms of the things I just said. So in the long run, I think it's possible that frontline approach will switch from imatinib to something else. But I don't think it's there. It's certainly not there now. Let's talk a little bit about ALL. What happened at the meeting that you think is important to know about? Again, I think there wasn't anything really practice-changing, for sure. There is more of a move now, I think, and there was a paper presented on this, to shift in ALL treatment to pegylated asparaginase. The advantage of pegylated asparaginase is basically that when you pegylate it, you prolong the drug's half-life, and so that you can give many less doses of the pegylated asparaginase than you would give of the regular asparaginase. And there was some data looking at this in adults. Asparaginase is a difficult drug to give to adults. Classically, it's always been much easier for children to tolerate. I don't 
think that there's a major advantage in terms of side effects to the pegylated, but there may be some advantage. And it appears to be well-tolerated, as well-tolerated as any asparaginase in adults, and it really can be given much less frequently. What about the GRAF study in ALL? First author, Shalandon, and younger adult patients with de novo Philadelphia-positive ALL compare an imatinib versus imatinib hyper-CVAD induction regimen. Right. So it's very clear that, and this was true in the original trials, that you can use imatinib or desatinib. The aside is that nilotinib is not approved for the treatment of pH-positive ALL. But you can use imatinib or desatinib and get reasonable response rates in pH-positive ALL. The problem is that, particularly in the relapse setting, these responses are not very durable. But the advantage of getting the response in a relapse setting I'm talking about is that that then gives you a potential window to get the patient to an allogeneic stem cell transplant, which would be the endpoint you would be aiming for because you're not going to cure a relapse pH-positive ALL with single-agent tyrosine kinase. But clearly, you can get responses to the single agent. Now, where most people are going, both in the frontline and the relapse setting, is combinations with chemotherapy. And that appears significantly better than either chemotherapy alone, based on historical data, or better than the TKIs alone. And there are a number of different regimens that are out there. This is a disease which is very interesting because it used to be really about the worst ALL. They're essentially without allogeneic transplant was really no cure fraction with chemotherapy. And many of these patients are older because the incidence of Philadelphia positivity increases with age. So some of them are really not candidates for transplant. And basically, it was a lethal diagnosis because even though you could get these people into remission with chemo, they all relapsed. Now, it's gone almost the opposite extreme, whereas historically, and still to this day, because we don't have long enough follow-up, our aim is to get patients to allogeneic transplant in first remission with pH-positive ALL. But in our own database, for example, we have patients who went on our frontline trial, which is hyper-CVAD with imatinib, who couldn't be transplanted. And for example, one of them is my patient who is about 76 and has a lot of comorbidities. And that patient is out five years now, PCR negative. Is he cured? I suspect he is. But, you know, obviously we need even longer follow-up to be more comfortable saying that. But the point is, with hyper-CVAT alone, the median progression-free survival, historically with pH-positive ALL, if they didn't go to transplant, was 16 months. And again, this man is out five years with PCR negativity. So now people are starting to question, wow, do you even need the transplant? And so that's probably the most not controversial, but unclear area in terms of pH-positive ALL, which is can we actually cure people now without sending them to transplant? What we're generally doing is monitoring MRD. And if MRD is positive, then trying to get that patient to transplant. Or if they're young, probably just going ahead and transplanting them. But we have enough patients that can't be transplanted that we will be able to look at, to some extent, what's the outcome for those patients. They won't be exactly the same because they'll tend to be the older patients, et cetera. But if they're doing relatively as well and they are actually a worse group, that would be very encouraging. So I would still say that the standard approach, if you can get the patient to transplant, is to send them for allogeneic transplant. But I would also say that I think there's a possibility that we are curing a fraction of these patients and what that fraction is remains to be seen without allogeneic transplant. How about the paper from your group with Deborah Thomas as the first author looking at modified hyper-CVAD with or without rituximab for ALL? 
Right. So as a segue from that first, the other interesting point is that the other really bad ALL historically, where you had a very high mortality rate, besides the Philadelphia chromosome positive ones, were Burkitt's. You know, these are very aggressive B-cell tumors, leukemias. Patients' lymph nodes can literally double in size in days. I mean, this is what an incredible proliferative fraction this disease has. And if you think on historically how ALL has been treated, particularly in most of the adult regimens were adapted from pediatric regimens, it was sort of different drugs given over a very prolonged period of time, weeks and weeks. When the pediatric people developed a different approach for Burkitt's and said, well, this is a rapidly proliferating disease, maybe we're not getting good outcomes because of the way we give therapy for ALL, and developed regimens to give very intensive chemo, and hypersevad happens to be one of those, in a very short period of time. Well, we started doing a lot better. Just with that type of chemo approach, we did better, but we still weren't doing great. All the patients with Burkitt's are CD20 positive. So what we then started doing, we and others, was adding rituximab to the hypersevad for the patients with Burkitt's. And this has produced an incredible outcome. And so ironically, just as in the pH-positive ALL setting, now with this targeted therapy, if you will, these patients have gone from being one of the worst groups historically to actually being one of the most highly cured groups with ALL. It's just interesting how targeted therapy has really changed the prognosis of different subsets of ALL. So the hypothesis behind the presentation you're talking about was that a subset of patients with regular pre-BALL, not Burkitt's, are also CD20 positive. It's roughly a third. And so we introduced rituximab to hypersevad for any patient, not just the Burkitt's, who was CD20 positive. And what Debbie showed in that was that we are improving the outcome, although it seems to be that the most improvement is in the younger patients. That wasn't true in the Burkitts. There, the elderly patients also did much better with the introduction of rituximab. And for whatever reason, in the pre-BALL, the younger patients are the ones that are predominantly benefiting. But again, compared to our historical control data, the addition of rituximab to hypersevad for the CD20 positive appears to be improving their outcome. What did you think about the paper by Larson and all looking at desatinib, 140 milligrams once a day compared to 70 BID? What they showed is that 140 once a day appeared to be somewhat less toxic. I think we had a clue that this was going to be the result because there actually was a forearm randomized trial that was recently published where patients received desatinib 50 twice a day, 100 once a day, 70 twice a day, which was the initial approved dosage or 140 once a day. And that forearm randomized trial showed that the best regimen, in fact, was 100 once a day. Now, if you looked at the response rates, they were pretty much identical between the four arms. But it was very clear that 100 once a day had less toxicity, particularly in terms of pleural effusions, but also less myelosuppression. And interestingly, even though the response rates were fairly equal across the four arms, the 100 milligram daily dose had the best event-free survival. And the hypothesis was that those patients are just on drug more because at the higher doses, there's a lot of stopping and starting, et cetera. So this trial only looked at 70 versus one. In fact, the forearm trial that I just mentioned is actually what led to a change in the label so that 100 milligrams is now the standard dose for chronic phase. However, 70 BID is still the approved and standard dose for more advanced phases, so accelerated phase CML or blast crisis CML. It's still 70 BID. So this is relevant particularly to the advanced phase patients where we don't give them 100 once a day. And then the question was, well, in the higher dose, does the schedule matter? And we had had some preliminary data to suggest 
that based on a multivariate analysis of our historical control population, this is a paper recently published, we looked at all of our patients with dasatinib, and about a third of them developed pleural effusions. Most were not severe. But interestingly, in multivariate analysis, the three things that remained as being associated with the development of effusion were a history of heart disease, hypertension, and the schedule. So the BID schedule versus the once a day. And sure enough, this randomized trial now, which, as I said, is still quite relevant, even though we have the forearm trial, because the 100 milligram dose is not the dose for the advanced phases. And I think what this suggests is that in advanced phases, we should be using 140 once a day and not 70 BID. Anything else happened at the meeting in terms of ALL you want to comment on? It wasn't so predominant at this meeting, but I'd say one of the hot areas in ALL now is what are called the AYA, or the adolescents. And this is interesting because historically, adolescents, and I'll put adolescents, and varies a little depending on what you're looking at, but let's say patients between the ages of 16 and 21, have been treated either on pediatric protocols, depending on what doctor they see, or on adult protocols. And there's a fair bit of data now comparing, and not a randomized trial, but comparing outcomes of pediatric protocols for that specific age group. Because one of the issues with, obviously, pediatric ALL has a much higher cure rate than adult ALL, but there are also significant differences in the disease itself. So for example, as I mentioned, Philadelphia chromosome is not very common in children, whereas it accounts for almost 50% of elderly patients with ALL, although that's becoming, in fact, better as we discussed. But also, for example, the TEL-TEL abnormality, which is a translocation that's found in children, in a high percentage of children, almost 50%, confers a very good prognosis, and you never find that in adult ALL. So the point is that there are clear differences in the disease biology. That being said, the question has always remained, are there other reasons that pediatric patients do better? So in all of these comparisons within the age group, and that's the advantage of the AYA because you're dealing with relatively the same age group who either got pediatric or adult regimens, what all the comparative data has shown from both North America and Europe is that the 16 to 21-year-olds who get treated on pediatric regimens do significantly better. Now, it's interesting. Part of that is probably drugs. So the non-myelosuppressive drugs tend to be given to a much greater extent in pediatric protocols. And what do I mean by that? Steroids, vincristin, and asparaginase. And probably part of the reason for that is those are the drugs where you run into a lot of trouble in adults. It's very hard to give high-dose steroids to older people. It's very hard to give asparaginase. And we know that the neuropathy becomes much more of an issue with vincristin. So this has led to the idea that, well, maybe we should be using pediatric approach, pediatric-type regimens for a subset of young patients with ALL. And how you define young depends a little bit on how old the investigators are and other things. But what is young? So, you know, recently there was a French trial where they went, they used a pediatric type regimen in patients up to the age of 50 and showed a better outcome compared to their historical controls, but only for patients under 40. Because there's a lot of toxicity with these regimens in older patients. But this is a very hot area now in terms of trying to do more aggressive pediatric regimens in maybe patients up to the age of 20 or 30. Interestingly, we did look at our own hyper-CVAD data in patients under 30, and it compares very favorably to the published data with the pediatric regimens, but that may be because hyper-CVAD is a rather unusual regimen, again, that was developed for Burkitt's originally, but gives very short intensive courses of chemotherapy over three to four days every three weeks. 
That being said, the myelosuppressive toxicity with hyper-CVAD is much greater than what you see in pediatric-type regimens, but it doesn't have asparaginase. You know, you don't run into problems so much with the vincristin. So it may not just be pediatric regimens that would be good in this age group, but it may need to be some kind of more intensified regimen. And it's not really clear that the drugs that have to be intensified have to be the ones that are intensified in pediatric regimens. But clearly, these patients can probably take more aggressive therapy than the standard adult ALL regimens. I'd say probably at least up to the age of 30. And so that's a very hot area now, trying to explore more pediatric dose-intensified regimens in younger adults with ALL.